welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. There have been a slew of books written about the faults and foibles of college sports, some hitting very close to home as to what is really going on. About five years ago, journalist Joe Nocera, then of the New York Times, now of Bloomberg, and Ben Strauss, then of the New York Times, now of the Washington Post, collaborated on a look into college sports entitled Indentured, Inside the Story of the Rebellion Against the NCAA. It was one of the first books to reframe the narrative surrounding college sports. Instead of greedy athletes who sold jerseys illegally to make some extra cash, examples including Terrell Pryor and other Ohio State football players, amongst many others, the narrative shifted to how outlandish the athletic department, conferences, and the NCAA itself was behaving with billion-dollar television contracts and multi-million-dollar coaches, athletic directors, and conference commissioners. The new focus from journalists and academics became how, about how corrupt the system was. Indentured lands squarely in the middle of that conversation. I'm joined by Ben Strauss, co-author of Indentured and currently a sports and media writer for the Washington Post. Ben understands the college athletics media space like few others. We discuss the challenges that Division I athletics is facing and why he is skeptical about reform and try to answer the question, is college athletics imploding because Jim Delaney retired? Welcome to the podcast, Ben. I'm joined by Ben Strauss, co-author of Indentured and currently a sports and media writer for the Washington Post. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here, Dr. Weaver. Thanks for having me. Very good to have you. Let's start with a question from the book jacket. Quote, how can the NCAA blithely wreck careers without regard to due process or common fairness? How can it act so ruthlessly to enforce rules that are so petty? Why won't anybody stand up to these outrageous violations of American values and American justice? Yes, this was written probably in 2015. Here we are in 2021. Would it be accurate to say that the NCAA still has that power? Or is it an organization so deflated by the events of the last two years that folks just don't feel the abject terror of the NCAA investigation anymore? Yeah, I think it's the I think it's the latter. Uh, I think a lot of that um, there was a lot of due process, you know, related to those questions when the book came out. But but really, you had this 400-page rule book, and so much of it was related to what an athlete could not get. Um, you know, there was forever an athlete could get a sandwich but if you put cream cheese on it or you could get a bagel but if you put cream cheese on it that wasn't okay um and so with these new nil rules uh i think um that really really reshapes um you know both the ncaa rulebook and, and college sports in general but that was you know one of the key pieces of, of what the rulebook was and what those questions were referring to um you know in the book i i always remember the you know there was a mississippi state football player in the 70s who lost three years of his career because he got a 12 dollars discount on a pair of pants um and so you know stuff like that where you know you can you know do an endorsement for the pants store now um <laughs> you know and, and get, get as many pants. pairs of pants as you want <laughs> uh you right like uh, that is what for so long what we talked about with ncaa rules and and yeah the nil rules um you know sort of do make that a moot point yeah it's really amazing i almost feel like the organization has been neutered 
in some ways. It just feels like it's sort of limping along. And even this morning, some, some general consensus ideas came out about the Constitutional Convention and what the first draft might look like. And it feels like they've taken one little baby step forward. If in fact, those, those ideas are, are what comes true. It just feels like they're almost incapable of really thinking about massive change. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, I think one thing I would always say when we talk about the NCA is like, it is the folks in Indianapolis, but the people voting on this rules are college presidents. It's the universities. And so when we say the NCAA, what we're saying is our, you know, we are talking about the same universities. Um, you know, it's a little bit like the UN where it's made up of the countries, but sort of you can, you know, sling your arrows at the UN and then everybody else, you know, sort of evades the scrutiny. But, you know, when we talk about the NCA, we're also talking about these universities uh, that have been slow to evolve, have not wanted to evolve and, you know, have been happy to, you know, uh, take a lot of the money that's coming in uh, without sharing it really. Um, but no, this is, uh, this is not new. The NCAA, um, like could have evolved fairly e easily on NIL and adopted some sort of Olympic model years ago. Um, you know, they went to court, uh, even before the O'Bannon case and, and said that the cost of attendance stipend, you know, was going to ruin college sports. Uh, and so, you know, when you say the sky is falling, for everything, you know, it's a little bit like the the boy who cried wolf. And as we've seen this season, the NIL rules have had minimal impact on, you know, the popularity of college football and um, really how the sport has run in, in general. But no, they, a different organization, more progressive, more forward thinking, you know, perhaps didn't need to spend tens of millions of dollars on legal fees, probably more hundreds of millions of dollars over the last 10 years uh, and could have, um, you know, gotten to this place fairly easily, right? Avoided this, you know, idea of, you know, these players are employees, uh, avoided, you know, a question that's gonna come at some point of whether they should get salaries from the university and, and you know, adopted this Olympic model um, a long time ago. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of the criticism and a lot of the, the lawsuits would have been, um, it would have looked a lot different. And it's also quite stunning to think that uh, in this day and age, we still have college presidents who really do not understand how to think about this as a broader responsibility to all of higher education rather than just in what's in the best interest for my school and my conference when they're voting. And you mentioned about not being able to share revenues. That is one of the biggest problems that I think that the NCAA has faced all the way back to 1972, when the former president at Long Beach State stood up in front of the entire convention and says, I think we need to take from the rich and give to the poor to help everybody rise all their boats. And he was nearly laughed out of the convention because he felt that sharing revenues was a good thing. And we still have trouble with sharing, Ben, I think. I think this is, I mean, it, it sort of speaks in one way to sort of how disparate the organization is, right? Like when you have the same college governing body that's supposed to, um, you know, ostensibly set the rules for Alcorn State and Alabama, those are entirely different institutions with entirely different goals for their athletic program, um, entirely different um, ways to achieve them, entirely different ways to, to go about it. And 
what works for those two schools is is not the same. And so, you know, where is this go? I, it seems to me that sort of these bigger schools are going to continue to have different values and different resources and different um, agendas than the smaller schools. And at some point are just going to have their own, you know, governing system. Yeah, I, th I think we are moving in that direction, particularly with division one. I think division one does need to split up. I do think that the most um, what we call the power five, the most wealthiest institutions do need to take care of their own shop because nobody else can keep up with them. Even if you just try to be in basketball centric conference, you can't keep up with the spending that a football driven university has. I think that's really hurting and they just need to accept that they need to split off. What happens with the revenues, they can all stay within the NCAA from the March Madness tournament, but I think the football revenue schools need to go off and do their own thing. What do you think? Well, you already have the football, uh, college football playoff has nothing to do with the CAA, right? It's run by these, you know, handful of big conferences. So yeah, I mean, you go back to the region's decision in the 80s. This has been a actually now close to 40 year process, but um, I think absolutely we're, we're headed that way. Yeah, I think so. So let's go back in time a little bit and think about this term, the National Letter of Intent which uh, at the time, and I guess today still bounds an athlete to a school and to a coach. Now with the transfer portal being wide open, it seems to have created a revolving door where coaches want to recruit off of other teams' rosters to gain some seniority on their teams because they're assuming that their kids are gonna leave. How did, the, how did we get to this point and did the pendulum swing too far? Oh, I, we got to this point. Um by the intransigence of like the leadership of college sports. Um, the, the pendulum was so skewed for so long, you know, 50 years of, you know, coaches can leave whenever they want. And, you know, they're getting these huge golden parachutes, you know, Charlie Weiss leaves Notre Dame and is getting paid 15 years later. Um, you know, that's how we got to this point. Um, so I don't think it's gotten too far. I think the system was professionalized and this is where you're left with a professionalized system. So um, I think that, you know, when you bring in this amount of money and, and, and you have different rules for the coaches and the players and you professionalize everything except for the players. Now, when the players are suddenly catching up or sort of, you know, part of the economy, um, they get some of the same freedoms that the adults in the system have had forever. The idea that it's swung too far, I think, is a little unfair. I think that that people set these rules and and somehow that now they apply to the athletes um, themselves. Where you know what are we doing here? Or has the pendulum swung too far? I think it's a it's a little uh, it's it's a little unfair. Yeah, and I think some folks are e eagerly awaiting the NBA's decision to just take kids right out of high school or to allow them to come into their farm system and not have to deal with one and dones in the, in the NCAA. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that is, that will be a good, just a sort of like freedom of labor. Um, but if you recall when that was put into place, the NCAA was very pleased, um, right? Cause they were gonna get these Carmelo Anthony's for a year instead of losing, you know, Kobe and Kevin Garnett and, uh, LeBron James. And so I think that has really swung um, the way that college sports thinks about that. Um, yeah, I, but I think everybody at this point would, right, the, the, uh, the NBA has their own farm system now. They have one 
a particular team um, where they're taking what would be freshmen in high school as sort of this all-star team who would play, you know, around the country. Um, and so they're already looking, you know, how they can serve that, you know, top layer of, of talent. But I do think it's really interesting to note how, how differently the leadership of college sports thinks about that rule today versus uh, when it was put into place. But I, I think everybody agrees the next collective bargaining agreement is not going to include that. Right. I think that's in 2023. Is that, does that sound right? I do not know. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I don't think it's that far away. Okay. Okay. So you and I are huge students of the impact that media and media revenues have had on college sports. It seems like the division one market has shifted away from the concept of one good team playing an average team on a given weekend to, to trying to drive two powerhouse teams being handpicked for an early season matchup like this past weekend with Oregon, Ohio State or with Penn State, Auburn coming right. to mind. Put on your wizard hat and walk us through your thoughts on this inflection point. Does it mean that we're gonna constantly seek out more of these powerhouse matchups every weekend? And if so, what does that mean for the FBS? for college football playoff and the way division one structured. Yeah. Okay. So my wizard hat, here we go. Wizard. Yes. <laughs> um, I guess that's the two things that, that I think about. One is when you think about these uh, media companies that need these games, they're paying more and more money. ESPN, Fox, um, CBS, how, I don't know how much money ESPN might be paying $300 million a year for the SEC package that they're stealing away from CBS who in the previous iteration was was paying you know a fraction of that which was probably the best deal in all of sports tv but um you know speaks to how valuable these properties are in a fragmenting universe when scripted television everybody's streaming nobody watches you know primetime tv on nbc anymore um so they're more valuable they're paying more money and you know the media companies want to get more out of that Right. So you want Penn State playing Auburn versus, you know, Penn State playing Rutgers on a Saturday night. And so Villanova this weekend. Villanova yes. this weekend. So you're you're having media companies playing more and more roles. You saw this with, um, you know, ESPN being involved in realignment um, and ESPN's role in, in the SEC going after Texas and Oklahoma because they've now acquired the SEC rights. And those are going to be even more valuable to ESPN. Uh, if you add Texas and Oklahoma, you know, we may end up getting litigation around that from the Big 12. seems like the Big 12 has, has walked it back a little bit because eventually they're going to go back to ESPN for their own deal. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, there's no question that, that, that the media companies have played a role. And then when you talk about, or you ask about what does it mean, you know, you're getting more of these matchups, which the media companies are asking for. I think you're just moving sort of toward a, a, a place where you have a split off, you know, bigger super conference of however many schools and whoever gets to make it. And, you know, those are the ones that are going to play each other. They generate the TV ratings. It's not um, any different than the super league that's been proposed in Europe where the, the TV companies have realized that there are more valuable teams than others. And like with so much in our society these days, the, the middle ground is, you know, getting smaller and you're having, you know, the haves and the have nots and the people that drive value are worth more than ever. And the people who don't are worth less than ever. Um, and it seems like that's in the same way we talked about, you know, before where you're headed in college football, these big brands that can drive big TV audiences 
and be valuable to media companies are going to become more valuable than ever. And if you're not in that group, uh, you are going to be less valuable than ever because there's going to be less impetus to share. Um, and the teams that are driving that value are going to keep more of that money. Did you have any initial reaction to the uh, immediate uh, press conference called by the Big Ten, ACC, and the Pac-12 to form an alliance? Did you understand <laughs> what that meant? Uh, yeah. I, what are they? What What is the alliance? That's my. That was my question. We're going to call a press conference and announce something. <laughs> well, um, I don't think they know what they're going to do, but it felt like they had to say something, yeah, and so they said something to change the. Uh, but I don't know what, um, you know, we sit here uh, weeks later, I don't know what they said. I don't either. Other than, I think the Pac-12 now has a, has a an alliance with the SWAC. So I'm not sure where that alliance fits in with the other alliances. No, I think we like, we went, we sort of like when, I think for a long time, Jim Delaney was the most powerful person in college sports and he retired and very, very clearly, um, the most uh, powerful person today is Sankey at the SEC. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he is driving the future of college sports more than uh, more than anybody else. Well, there's been several news reports that have come out recently that basically said the SEC is on track in what a couple of years to out earn the NCAA in terms of total conference revenue. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I think that if you're the big 10, you sort of, you know, have been lapped a little bit. Um, the big 10 used to be the most powerful conference in college sports and, and they've clearly been surpassed by the sec. So did Delaney's retirement leave a vacuum that Sankey could move into? Yeah. I think that you, if, if you don't look at that as one shift, then you're missing something for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to the book indentured, one of the things that, that you wrote is you have an entire chapter on your conversation with Jim Delaney and him kind of reflecting back. He was still, what, three years away from retirement, I think, when you interviewed him, something like that. But you said, he said, told you something. Um, what's good for the Big Ten has been good for college sports. And I thought that was a very interesting telling comment because he was very critical in your chapter of all the things that were going on outside the Big Ten. But inside the Big Ten, all the changes that he brought forth were all good for college sports. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was three years, right? What was his, his retirement package? Was he got like, you know, a $20, $20 million or something yeah. like that? He was, he's, he's brilliant. He, you know, conceived of the Big Ten network before anybody else realized this. Um, looked at realignment and, and conference expansion and sort of like, what would it mean to have TV areas in, you know, New Jersey and, and the DC area, um, you know, brilliant and, and kept the big 10 ahead of Roy Kramer's SEC, um, you know, for a long time. Uh, also, you know, somebody who speaks uh, very romantically about uh, his own college experience and playing for uh, the, on the North Carolina basketball team. Um, and there is a little bit of a, you know, a disconnect between, you know, sort of the um, romanticized version of, of college sports as a pastime where you use sports to get ahead in life as academics and sort of college sports as a, you know, multi-billion dollar business um, where you have to raise all this money and then, you know, can't share that with the players. It's, um, you know, 
he's one of the most um, you know important people in the the course of the history of college sports for sure. Yeah, and you you press him a little bit on some of the legal challenges. And just as a reminder to the audience, Jim was a lawyer. He thought of things in a very legalistic kind of way. And one of the things you said uh, is he loves to compete. He loves to compete with ideas. And when you asked him about the various legal challenges, he says, well, let's find out who's right. When the courts and Congress decide how these statutes are applicable, whether it be Title IX, labor law, antitrust law, I'll live with that because I live in America. But access to the courts goes both ways. And if I disagree, let's get out there and compete. Well, what do you think Jim Delaney would say today? <laughs> I don't know. I guess that, that's a pretty interesting question. What would he say today? I guess he would say, <laughs> didn't he? I think what, at one point he said the Big Ten would go to Division Three. Yes. Uh, I don't know if, I can't remember when he said that or where he said it. I, I know he had, you know, very dramatic testimony in the O'Bannon case talking about his own experience. and. That might have been, he said, you know, we'd go play division three, we'd take our ball and go home. Um, yeah. I don't know what he would say. I, uh, I don't know. Um, but I haven't talked to him in a while. I, I would like to ask him. You should have him on the podcast. I should have him on the podcast. That would be great. Yeah, I thought a lot about the void. I really feel like, and COVID enhanced all this, but I really feel like the, a serious void happened when he retired and everybody has the right to retire, but he was the standard bearer. The Big Ten Conference Network was the standard bearer. How they treated female athletes was the standard bearer. Um, their sense of creating higher academic standards for athletes to compete was the standard bearer. And I feel like the, the, the Big Ten and to some degree the Pac-12 has lost that narrative and the SEC is comfortably up top saying, bigger is better, more money is better, and therefore we will be better. I think more money is better is a, it's not a new ethos. No. I think Delaney <laughs> would say more, you know, like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I do think that there is a, a power vacuum and, and Sankey has filled it, right? And, and um, he really can shape the future of college sports because right like the the big 10 and the pac-12 are chasing the sec right like i don't think jim delaney's big 10 would have had to call a press conference to announce an alliance because they needed to say something yeah um and i don't know what they would have done but i i sort of imagine he would not have been caught uh flat-footed by the sec announcing you know texas and Oklahoma. If you hear um, that thunder, it is, uh, it is Jim Delaney <laughs> speaking. <laughs> um, I just think it's an interesting, we're at a very interesting place. And, and the other thing I wanted to comment about is the new Pac-12 commissioner, George Kliakov, who comes from an entertainment and casino background. What do you yeah. think about that impact on the media inside college athletics? Well, I, the Pac-12, right, they went, they, they hired Larry Scott because he was an executive at the Tennis Channel, I think. And that was just a disaster, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I think that the Pac-12 hopes they have better luck this time around. Um, I can't say that I've, I've done a lot of reporting or know a ton about the new commissioner, but I just, it, it shows you where, you where those college presidents think this is headed. Um, that those are the skills they need. Um, the gambling thing, right? I think everybody in sports media and sort of the business of sports is 
like, you know, running headlong and trying to wrap their heads, wrap their arms around this gambling thing. Because as you see traditional, um, you know, revenue sources going away, advertising, you know, as part of the TV bundle, um, you know, cable fees as part of the TV bundle, you got to replace that somehow, because this has been the driving force behind, you know, the business of sports from the NFL down to, you know, the Big Ten, um, you know, over the past 30 years. Uh, I think you're seeing, you know, people are desperate to, to fill in some of that missing revenue and, and gambling comes along and, and offers, you know, people this safety and safety net and, 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 you know, everybody from the pros to college will have to see what the uh, repercussions of that are. Um, and if it's as valuable as, as they seem to think that it is. I, I just see colleges falling right along with what the NFL is doing. And they just set a partnership with uh, 5G with Verizon. They're going to put 5G in every, every stadium in the country so that they can get delivered gambling information right to the phones. So you can gamble while you're sitting in your seat. I think college football is going to say, we want that. Um, I don't think anybody has really ever said no to a lot of money in college sports that's not um there's been a lot of hand-wringing about it but no one has ever said keep yes. your money really yeah. to anybody ever it's true it's true because we never have enough money because we always spend what we get it doesn't matter there's no budget we just spend it yeah. <laughs> so the last thing is um uh, there was a piece in sports business journal the other day about jeffrey kessler joining the legal team to try to seek uh, further reparations for past restraints on NIL and a share of TV revenues for the players who previously played. Now, neither one of us is a lawyer, but my thoughts are that Kessler doesn't jump into any case. He doesn't think he can win. He can't win. And, I remind, and a reminder, Kessler was the lead attorney in the NCAA, the Austin case in front of the Supreme Court this summer. What in the world would this do if Kessler and his team are able to win reparations going backwards yeah um it would be a big deal uh i think they did get money some money in the alston case for previous athletes the the money for individual athletes was kind of small but the total pot was you know in the tens of millions of dollars um you know kessler is pretty good at this uh he's got a long record on this i am somewhat the courts have been um, a little unwilling to hit red buttons in college sports. And even the Supreme Court, um, you know, ahead of the NIL uh, new rules that the NCAA said they weren't going to have anymore, um, you know, decided a case about educational expenses very narrowly. And there was this blistering opinion by Justice Kavanaugh. It didn't actually do anything. You know, it was just sort of a, um, you know, an addendum opinion. And so I, uh, I remain somewhat skeptical that there's any court that is going to go ahead on its own and say, you know, the NCAA and all these schools need to pay former athletes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Hmm. Um, even if the legal case looks pretty strong, sort of the practical effects of what it means in higher education and, um, you know, throwing some sort of huge wrench into like, the way college sports functions hasn't been something that any court has actually wanted to do. And so with the new rules, and even if, right, you sort of look at it as a legal case and say, this is pretty slam dunk case, we, we have seen 
courts bend over backwards to say the NCA broke the law, but we're not going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so until courts do something besides that, I am a little skeptical of what they're willing to do on a huge grand scale. Yeah, fair enough. And, and you never know. And the makeup of the court does seem to make a difference in their attitudes. And, and it certainly NCA v. Austin, the conversation amongst the justices in April was fascinating to hear the questions they asked and how they viewed the situation wholly different from way back in 1984. And yeah. so it's Yeah, absolutely. Ben Strauss, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk all things media and indentured and uh, just congratulations on the great writing you're doing at the Washington Post. I enjoy reading it. Uh, it's always good to uh, to see you on uh, virtually at least, but um, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun.